and welcome to Glossonomia. Conversations about the sounds of speech. Hi, I'm Eric Armstrong. And I'm Phil Thompson. And here we are to follow up our second part of our episode on diacritics. Yeah, we uh, sort of had some technical difficulties last time. And so we went blithely talking on, uh, but you weren't party to that conversation, dear listeners. So uh, we're going to go back to where we... where we were rudely interrupted, uh, and uh, start talking about the laminal diacritic. Uh, I, I think that there's a little moment we could have where we uh, just say overall that we are dealing with diacritics, and diacritics are adjustments in the symbol. Uh, there are special instructions to this to how you should read the symbol, and they're often about place of articulation, but sometimes they're about manner of articulation, and uh, the the laminal diacritic is one of those that is definitely about place of articulation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we're talking primarily about the tongue part of the articulation yeah. with laminal, um, and uh, the, it, it pairs very nicely with Apical, right? Yeah, which, frankly, since most things that are dealing with the tip of the tongue are apical, uh, most articulations uh, from dental back to retroflex are probably apical by default. The laminal diacritic is the one that I end up using, and I never use the apical diacritic because I assume that if there's no diacritic... It's going to be apical. Yeah. Um, and we we did talk about laminal last time, so really we're we're moving on from there. All right, good, good. Um, and so it, continuing with the articulation diacritics, if for some reason that you're jumping in at this point, let's explain that we're following along with the Wikipedia page on uh, di- uh, diacritics. It's actually part of the International Phonetic Alphabet page yeah. on Wikipedia. And uh, I think number six or something like that, somewhere yeah, it, down the page. It took us a while to find it because we were looking for the Wikipedia diacritics page. And there is a page about diacritics, but there are the broader orthographic diacritics, those things that are used in, in printing. Uh, it's worth saying, because we have down here uh, the centralized symbol. Now, we covered all those last time, right? Um, yep. Uh, it's worth noting that the centralized symbol is... Oh, sorry, no, we we, we discussed them, but ah, centralized, but we didn't actually um, get recorded. Oh, I see, I see. So, so laminal is what we just did, so we need okay, to, to now do advanced, retracted, centralized, etc. Well, we can say this about the advanced one, too. It's a plus sign, so it's, it's a symbol that uh, we can see outside of phonetics. Uh, in this special case, it means towards the left or towards the front of the mouth. Uh, And you can see it on this chart underneath the OO symbol, and that's a pretty common use of this symbol because here in California particularly, our OOs are fronted. uh, And that's the case in modern British speech as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, The opposite of that is retracted, and you can see that that's on the E symbol there, so E, 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 which I would say is less common because there's usually some mid-centralizing, uh, 
some lowering as well as centralizing of E in most realizations that, that I've run into. But I have rarely seen the advanced or retracted symbol used under a consonant. And here on the page, you can see that the T is advanced, which would mean that it would be more like a dental plosive. Mm. Which is, you could certainly hear that. I yes. just wouldn't always use this symbol for it. Right. Uh, similarly, the retracted, the minus sign, could be used on a consonant, pulling that T back, which is likely to pull it into the sort of post-alveolar yeah. place. Um, and that that's not likely to m make much of a difference. Um, but uh, Although so I... I have uh, seen my students use this symbol. Uh, they do transcriptions of one another. And in certain cases, uh, almost all of my students take s and move it back to sh when they're saying, for example, strength. Uh, they may be going all the way back to uh, post-alveolar fricative strength. But in many cases, they're just retracting the tip of the tongue a little bit so they get something like sh but closer to s. Right. And I think when we recorded it last time, I gave the example of the theta and ev sounds that are uh, part of Icelandic, and yeah. that in Icelandic, those are retracted to the point that they're said in an alveolar place. So they're essentially like a slit form of an s. S is normally a grooved sound, yeah. but... Uh, the, those th sounds are slit sounds they're very wide um, and so one way of transcribing them is to continue to use the theta and ev symbols but put a little retracted symbol beneath them rather than confusingly using a, an s um, and that, that's something that's i think worth elaborating on that oftentimes we the symbol represents uh the, the main articulation, but there may be something unsaid about it, some default assumption in it. For example, the S is alveolar. It's an alveolar fricative, but it is a particular kind of uh, alveolar fricative. It's a grooved one, and uh, that's not said anywhere on the chart. There is no symbol to attest to that. Uh, and so when we start adding symbols, we're we may be revealing other parts of the story that haven't been explicitly stated. Uh, that's why phonetics is an art as much as it is a science. Right. So uh, retracted means essentially um, the vowel quality is pulled back towards the center of the mouth if it's a front vowel yeah. or further back than where you might expect it to be. So for instance, in English, ooh, uh, in North America, we would expect ooh to be actually fairly advanced. It's mm -hmm. not the fully backed cardinal value of ooh really far back. Um, and so perhaps if you were using that assumption of a North American ooh and you wanted to describe uh, a, an Italian ooh that would be further back, you might use the lowercase u with the minus sign retracted diacritic. Right. So you're taking our assumptions about where u lives and confirming for us that it is well back. Yes. That's terrific. The, the next one is centralized, and this is usually the point at which my students say, we just did that. 
isn't a centralized A uh, a retracted A? And the answer is, of course, yes. Uh, it's saying it in a different way. It's saying straight back toward the center along the same line. Uh, right. Horizontal line. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's an important point. And I think it is some, somewhat indicated in the symbol. Uh, they look like the uh, uh, like curtain uh, runners or uh, the ski lift uh, wheels that take you along the, the cable. Cable uh, car. Yes, that's what yes. I'm thinking of. Uh, <laughs> it works for me. It's a problem little, with the little ski eyebrows. Lift. I see them as almost. Yes, I see that. Uh, the, so it essentially means straight back or straight forward. Uh, if both of these are front vowels that they've put the centralization symbol over, but you could put the double dots over the oo symbol, and that would make it oo. There's. There's what a, do we call the double dots? Well, well, I could skip the controversy and say it's an umlaut. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in fact, I think that the, the word that you and I have talked about before is diaresis. And was there another version of that? Was Di- it diaresis was the other one? Yeah. Diaresis, perhaps? Uh, and I mistakenly called it a diaresis before we... I wish we I could credit... Button. Oh, I know who corrected me. I think it was Dudley Dudley Knight who corrected me when I was pronouncing it exactly the same way. So I'm paying it forward. <laughs> um, and, uh, of course, the other the other name sometimes given to these is rock dots because they're <laughs> used so commonly in names like uh, Motley Crue and things like yeah. that. And uh, Spinal Tap. The, the diaresis is used in English spelling... Uh, not anymore, really, but was used to indicate a uh, syllable break. Mm-hmm. So zoology uh, would have a... Zoology. A zoology, yeah. Uh, would have a diaresis over the second O. Is that right? Over the second O. Yeah. To yeah, let you'll you see know. it in the, the New Yorker, I believe, continues this uh, practice. So a cooperation has co, and then on the operation part, the second O, they'll have a diaresis. That is mighty fancy. They they take themselves seriously there at the New Yorker. The word that actually always comes up into my mind is almost unused these days, but is important for our field, which is orthoepy, uh, which was the study of how to pronounce things based on their spelling, uh, which was a kind of a ridiculous black art. Uh, it was Assuming that English had the sort of spelling rules and pronunciation rules that, let's say, uh, Greek did. Uh, and so uh, it was used as a way, as sort of like uh, fortune-telling about the, the letters and the spelling to say, this is how you must pronounce it based on the spelling. But it was uh, some arcane sort of tea-leaf reading yes. process that only those in the know orthoepists could use to exactly. say you're in the club you're out of the club and so in that way it, it is like what a lot of speech work can be which is just describing who's in and who's out yes uh presenting yes exactly all right that's terrific uh so centralized and mid-centralized mid-centralized is a little x above the symbol 
And that one I always think of as X marks the spot, the center of the chart. It's also two crossing lines, which is the direction that mid-centralization occurs from the corners, we assume, to the center. It doesn't make much sense to mid-centralize something that's in the middle of the chart, uh, because you might as well use the uh, centralization tool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, and so it, you can imagine um, an E traveling on a diagonal line towards the center of that X or a, an R traveling along a diagonal line towards the center of the X. A any of those uh, would work. And imagine. in fact, they happen quite a lot because English is a language that reduces unstressed vowels. So uh, things move towards schwa when we unstress them. And so we get this mid-centralization process. I would say that in many cases when we do an unstressed Y ending of friendly city, if we, some people do go quite far up into E, friendly city, and others go all the way to friendly city. Uh, I think I and many people do something in between, which is friendly city, which is not quite E, but certainly not E either. Right. So it's riding that diagonal line between E and I, yeah. uh, to heading towards schwa. So, uh, you know, would uh, the, the diacritic, would it go right in the same spot where the dot is of the I, or is it above the dot? It, it replaces the dot in the, the modern Unicode fonts, like Gentium or Charis. Or is Dulos still a Unicode font? It is, yeah. I think it depends on the font designer and their interpretation of how that symbol interacts with the diacritic. When you're looking at the diacritics, it's often a good idea to see if you've got the combining form. Uh, so if you don't have a combining brev or a combining tilde or a combining mid-centralization mark, it'll show up just after the symbol. And the combining form tries to line up along the center of the symbol. Hmm. That's uh, interesting to find. Um, uh, yeah. I don't know how that responds to the kerning, uh, the expanding and contracting or condensing in uh, typeface, but... You can usually get them in the right place. Good to know. Okay, so let's move on to the next section, and that's um, the, the little T's that are used for raised and lowered. Mm -hmm. And these are, uh, I, I believe they're called tacks, are they not? I always call them thumbtacks, but I, I don't know if that's official or not. I think tack is the, the official name, so T for tack. Um, and I always thought it of, uh, of it as T for tongue, because the thing that's raised or lowered that's likely to move the vowel quality higher or lower is uh, uh, your tongue. So, um, yeah. And I always made the assumption that uh, it always seemed to me that I was being told that I was pulling my tongue down. <laughs> so, so the normal T stands for tongue going down. So that's easy to remember. But also think of the bottom of that T as an arrow. Yeah. The arrow is pointing down. So when we turn the T upside down, the, the sort of the top of the capital T is the base, and the, the vertical stem of the T is pointing up. Imagine an arrow pointing up. So um, that's a raising diacritic. And 
the uh, symbols here, the A symbol, uh, having that one with a down diacritic is actually quite common and was the practice for a long time in describing RP, because in fact, RP uh, used, probably some people still do use, a rather tense or high form of A in dress, dress. as opposed to dress or even dress. And uh, so that diacritic was used, and Tilly used it, uh, and Skinner learned it. Uh, and then later, when she removed some of the excess diacritics from her system, she left the E symbol to represent E. But of course, without the diacritic, it doesn't represent that. Uh, and used the epsilon for diphthongs like air. So that's the source of the, that confusion in her system. Uh, without the diacritic, you're saying something different. You're saying the base symbol. Mm -hmm. And the base symbol in traditional IPA is more of an A symbol. Yeah. Now, if I were to uh, have a lowering symbol on A, and you were to transcribe the same thing as an epsilon, which is the next symbol down uh, with a raising diacritic, uh, would you say that we were saying the same thing? Um, my my use is hopefully to not have them overlap so that I get uh, sort of four shades of, of options. So if I start with the lowercase e, a, then I've got the lowered version of that, a, and then the raised version of the epsilon, a, and then the epsilon on its own, a. So yeah. uh, between the a and a, I have two um, little granular spots on my slider where I can stop. I think that that, that makes helpful. a lot of... And even if you're not making such fine distinctions, you could probably point somebody towards the choice that you want by letting them think, well, you should start with A and go lower from there. So the symbol you choose as your starting point will influence the reader and point them towards more of the sound you want. I also have a habit. I don't know whether it's a good practice or a bad one, but it's what I tend to do. And that is that if I was in a situation where I felt like the person was familiar with the epsilon uh, representing their own value for something, and I wanted a raised version of it, mm -hmm. I'd be more likely to use the symbol that is less familiar um, so that it catches their eye looking at the transcription. Um, yeah. So if I was working on dress and they were used to seeing an epsilon for dress, then using a, uh, the a lowered version of A, uh, the, the lowercase e with the little downward tack, a lowered tack, would perhaps be more eye-catching uh, yeah. for someone who was used to the transcription modality that I use. It would encourage them to come at it from a different direction. That's right. Terrific. So... We also have these symbols under uh, consonants. I feel like using our usual system of my being the dull interlocutor. Eric, what is it that is happening there with that uh, raising symbol under an R? That seems strange. <laughs> uh, well, the 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 R. Oh dear, dull interlocutor. Uh, that if we think of the articulation of. Uh, are sitting in a certain place, so that 
consonant R sitting in a certain place, and if we make it in more close, closer to the the uh, hard palate, then uh, that that diacritic would raise the articulation of it. To what extent? Perhaps it might even get to the point where it becomes fricative. Uh, the art. The assumption with a consonant R is that it is an alveolar approximant. And when it gets closer to the, uh, the alveolar ridge, it's, it's going to get into that zone where turbulence starts to occur. And so you, you might be able to describe a sort of a kind of quality, red, red, um, by using this raised quality. Um, you have to know the assumptions about that. Uh, consonant R, that it is an, an approximate, and that when approximates get closer, they they can move into that turbulence zone and become fricatives to, to make that assumption. I do see here on the page that it says raised R equals voiced alveolar non-sibilant fricative. Oh, well, that's just cheating. I just <laughs> looked it up. It was just in front of me. So yeah, it's again, as you were saying, with the theta being moved back, uh, it's moving into this other location without adding our assumptions about it. Uh, it's non-sibilant, so it's not zzz. It lacks the groove. It may also have other features of the alveolar approximate R, which is a bit of tongue bunching, maybe tongue root retraction, so we get a little zzz. The most famous place I can think of this occurring is in the Czech composer Dvorak, or rather Dvorak. So that R, that's why nobody can spell it. Uh, they keep on trying to add a Z in there, but the Z is the R. Dvorak. Dvorak. So they also have this lowered bilabial approximate V, and in that sense, a lowered fricative is uh, an approximate. Yes. Uh, and so we the, the bilabial fricative is that beta symbol, or estset if you're a German speaker, mm -hmm. uh, a sound, and this is opened up, so there's a bit more of a gap, isn't there? And we do have a labiodental approximate, va. And this is a bilabial approximate, la, la. So we don't have a symbol for it, so we might as well use this to construct a symbol. Right. Terrific. I think we've covered that. Uh, so well, those were category of articulation diacritics, and that means we're moving yeah. into what's called co-articulation diacritics. So remind dull old me what uh, co-articulation means. Well, co-articulation is doing two articulations at once. They're overlapping in a sense. Um, you know, we were just talking about S, and that's in a way a co-articulation because there's the articulation described by the chart, which is alveolar and fricative, and what isn't described is this extra articulation of tongue grooving. Is that called sulcalization? I can't um, remember. Sulcalization is grooving, yes, but which way the groove goes? Because sometimes people use the term to mean grooving sort of in a left-to-right kind of way yeah. as opposed to a front-to-back kind of way. Well, I'll leave that as an unanswered footnote. So these diacritics tell you specifically another articulation to be doing. And we 
co-articulate and pre-articulate all the time in connected speech. So this sort of thing happens quite a bit, and it's not always pointed to. So, right. Another example would be the sh sound. Yeah. The sh is the symbol, and it is co-articulated in that in English at least it is almost always co-articulated with lip rounding. Um, and we don't make a big deal of that. We don't have to add a diacritic mark to say yeah. sh has lip rounding. Um, that's a means of lowering its frequency, making it more contrastive with s. So sh gets it much, much lower by doing that. You can compare sh and then spread your lips. And you should be able to hear a difference as your lips spread. The pitch will rise, and then as you round them again, it would lower. So the, the symbol that you might want to use for that, in fact, for that lip rounding, if we wanted to be explicit about it, uh, let's say we were talking about a language that didn't make that contrast, uh, we've got a more rounded symbol, which is called the open ring. It's really, it seems like it's cut more than halfway. It seems like more, uh, uh, quite a narrow sliver of rounded uh, of a ring underneath and it is open to the left when it means more rounded and that to me seems very reasonable indicating the lips moving forward now i have a, an image in my mind when i see this and that is of a head drawn pointing to the left because in all anatomical yeah. drawings they point to the left so uh, the the nose is pointing to the left and if you imagine drawing an L over top of the angle of the nose, you see it looks like a normal L. Um, and so you know that's going the right way. And if you round your lips, viewed from the side, your lips kind of make this sort of backwards C shape. Um, whereas less rounded, your lips aren't going to be reaching that way, so you use the opposite. So you yeah. use more of a C shape for less rounded. Yeah, absolutely. And that, to me, seems very intuitive. And and these are symbols that could be used on vowels. Uh, for example, we've got the O and O with more rounding. I think I should just briefly mention, if I can, that rounding, it really involves two actions. It involves lip protrusion and lip pursing. So I can trumpet my lips far out there, oh, or I can like a purse string around the inner ring of my lips, make that tighter and make it a sort of pencil-sized oh. Those are, those are both lumped together under the term rounding. Mm -hmm. And we probably don't need to specify or make a distinction between more lip protrusion or more lip pursing. Uh, Julian Lane Plesha, in her... Um... CDs, they were originally cassettes, but they're now on CD, um, uh, particularly for accents of England, or uh, British for actors, I think is what the, the, the original CD was called, uh, talked about feeling the hollow, hollow cheek feeling, that uh, if you draw the, your lip corners forward, or you often get this kind of hollow feeling on the sides of your mouth, as if the, your cheeks are being drawn in towards your teeth. And um, I, I often use that as sort of a secondary way of getting people to explore lip corner advancement, mm -hmm. lip rounding, uh, as a, an alternative feeling, that, that kind of hollow cheek feeling. Um, 
It's I, I reminiscent say, a bit of Lessac in a way. Yes, absolutely, that uh, inverted megaphone. It does seem to me that when talking about that sound in specific, the thought, the apparent movement of the lips is not necessarily the largest contributing factor to the change in sound. Mm -hmm. uh, that you can say thought, thought, with your lips scarcely moving at all and letting more of that acoustic change happen with tongue position or with tightening your buccinator muscles so that the lip, so that the cheeks come in closer to your teeth, which is what you were just talking about with that sort of rounded, uh, uh, hollowed-out cheeks. Yeah. So these symbols are not simply instructions to make an action. They're adding another aspect, and that is an acoustic aspect in a sense. You're saying change the sound in this way, probably by lip rounding. Right, and that's often the most visible way as a coach. If I can see you rounding your lips, then I, I think, well, he's probably doing the actions required that are getting him or her on the road to the sound that I want. Yeah. yeah. And once they can hear and feel the sound, they could do the action less and probably keep the feeling of it. Right, do it internally, if you would. Yeah. Um, so uh, the... Um, there, there are uh, on the, the the examples given by Wikipedia. There are some consonant symbols where they've used them. So they've got a ch with a rounded ch kind of feeling, uh, or less rounded. And they've even used a, a little diacritic for labial, and then bilabial, and then less rounding. So yeah. that's an odd one. Yeah, I don't quite understand that one because the little W, the superscript W, is the labialization, or it's the, it says labialization, but I would assume it is labialization uh, because that's what that W symbol represents. But then we're taking the hex off by doing less rounded. So I would have to have an explanation from somebody who made this chart. Perhaps uh, I mean <clears throat> rounded and labial velarized a little bit, but not too much. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, the, the two symbols balance each other out. Perhaps. I mean, it is absolutely true that uh, as if you go back to our episode on w and wh, we talk a little bit there about how a lot of those wh sounds entered English as a labialized k, ka, qua, qua. And so that lip rounding on a k, does lead us towards a w, yes. uh, perhaps even a hua, right? Right. Hua, hua, but hua, hua. honestly, I scarcely ever use these symbols on a consonant. Right. Uh, so the next one we've got is the one we just talked about, which is the labialized or labiovelarized, uh, which is the superscript w, uh, and we're now into a. Uh, uh, these next six, is it? Mm -hmm. Five, Five are... Oh, then we have the velarized or pharyngealized. Uh, they're really about adding another quality to a sound uh, in the overall vocal tract. They're, so they're adding a constriction, you could say, in a different place in the vocal tract. So it's sort of like laying on... Uh, an approximant on top of the other sound. 
that's very well put. The, the, the challenge is that, particularly for the first two, they're very familiar. Uh, the diacritic is a symbol that's very familiar to us. Right. And so uh, we have to remember that co-articulation is a concurrent articulation and not a consecutive articulation. Yeah. And so we have to think, you know, that it's not tawa, it's twa. Right, that it's done together, yeah. um, and that because the superscript is sort of above and to the right, we tend to think, well, I'll do the T first, and then I'll do the W, uh, and we really have to think that that superscript is is affecting it simultaneously. It is absolutely true that when I am moving into a lip rounded vowel, if I say two, I'm going to start my lip rounding on the. T- and because that's inevitable, I, it, it feels inevitable at least, I never put this symbol on. Mm-hmm. It just feels like a redundancy to me. And it's not adding much in the way of useful information to the listener. So in English anyway, I haven't had much cause to use the labialization or the palatalization symbol. Right. I, I think, you know, if you were doing it a labialized Ta, you're you're thinking you're going to ah, but it's labialized. Pa, pa, it's going to affect that pa, pa. Yeah. You're going to get a little, almost like a wa feeling on it. Uh, yeah, and it, that's not going to happen in English, but it might happen in other languages. Yeah, I, I just had a student who was saying uh, on, on, and she started it more labialized and ended it less labialized but I could use the more or less rounded symbol and and these symbols are here only indicated on consonants at least most of them we'll get to pharyngealized in a moment so I think there are often other ways to describe the interesting variations that we hear I mean someone perhaps might be able to argue that uh, an articulation of something like coffee uh yeah where that yeah. classic new york accent starts rounded and then it relaxes into the vowel so perhaps you could have a less rounded vowel for the end of it and not use a diacritic uh, uh, uh sorry a diphthong pardon me not use a diphthong but use uh, a diacritic on the k sound I'm certain that that's what Dudley taught me when I was a student, because a lot of these symbols hadn't really been laid out in this kind of detail at that time, back in the Stone Age, and uh, he used this symbol to indicate exactly coffee, that little shift, rather than making it into a diphthong or doing anything else. Uh, The palatalization symbol is in much more common use in Russian, because there's a whole phonological system of palatalizing. If you look at the Cyrillic characters for the word nyet, you'll see a n symbol, an e symbol, and a t symbol. And inherent in the rules of speaking Russian is that that n becomes palatalized, nyet, nyet. So that there's an an overlapping, a co-articulated palatal approximant happening in the transition space between n and e. It's a part of the assumptions of the language, isn't it? Yeah. And so the trouble arises when they look at a word like net 
and they they know n going into f from Russian should be net. So you get a I you know shoot shoot the basket in the net. Uh, yeah. Not a not what they ultimately want to be doing. And that would be really a case of orthographic interference where there's a spelling representing a set of sounds, and it's pumped through the filter of how you read those letters. Uh, velarized is a voiced velar fricative symbol. Uh, it's a symbol that we've said before is often confused with the ram's horn, which is the unrounded O. Uh, it's a descender, but not an ascender. So it's really a V with a little uh, goiter hanging off the bottom of it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and uh, that R, 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 uh, I'm doing that too fricative. Uh, 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 uh. So that's added to ta. <laughs> I'm trying to do it, and I maybe the reason I never use this symbol is I'm not too good at doing it, and so I'm not too good at hearing when it's occurring. Yet, yet, I can imagine it much more easily coming off of a g. Uh, because we're releasing from a velar position, good. But here we're indicating not a, a kind of release, but a different action co-articulated. So, d with an additional r, d, d, d. I can understand that. I just can't think of where that would occur. So I'm going to have to do some research on that. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, I, I suppose to a certain degree, right, uh, some people will use this instead of the tilde, which stands for velarized or pharyngealized. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so la, right, la, uh, could be represented in that way. L I think... with this little goiter. <laughs> yes. Dudley, I think, uses that at one point in speaking with skill. When talking about that velarized L, he uses this symbol. Uh, and then the pharyngealized symbol is uh, a pharyngeal approximant. Ah, ah, ah. It's hard to do it and make a sound without going all the way to the fricative. Right. Ah. And that is ah, ah, ah. Now, it seems to me that well, if I can skip ahead to the next one below that, which is velarized or pharyngealized, that's the one that we very commonly use on because in English we have this contrast between this positional variation between front clear L and back dark L, Lee and eel. And so we use that symbol in that special case. And when we're talking about it, I think we're talking about something that's a combination of velarization and pharyngealization. They're both kind of at work. There's this sort of bunching up of the back, which makes this space between the tongue and the velum and the space between the tongue and the pharynx smaller. Right. So that's a that's a tilde that goes through the middle of the letter. Yes. Uh, and they show it as a possibility on other consonant sounds like a Z, Z, Z. And there, there are a number of prefab uh, diacritics um, uh, letters with that tilde built into them. Um, if and, you look at the yeah. uh, uh, the Unicode versions, there's 
quite a lot of those. Uh, the one that I wish they had was would be the approximate R, the alveolar approximate R, with this symbol on it, because that would much better indicate the American R. Right. What they have is the right-side-up R with it over top, because so many phoneticians don't bother to use the upside-down R. Um, so yeah. You could flip that around, I suppose, but... But they, they have an M with a velarization, a nice long tilde stretched over it, um, or an N, or the Z, the T, the S. They even have F with that on it. So those are the prefab versions of those. And we seem to have left one out. I was too happy to skip down to this, and we left out, left out labiopalatalized. And we do have a labiopalatal... Uh, Approximant, which is on the other symbols part of the chart, which is e, e, e. Yeah. E, e. Um, so uh, if uh, uh, if you were, you know, sometimes you, you're watching a cooking show and there's, they've made a lovely dessert with a tuile on top of it, <laughs> which is French for tile, of course. Um, and uh, usually it's made out of sugar, right? Uh, caramelized sugar. Um, uh, the word tuile uh, in French uses this uh, labiopalatalization. So it's going into E. It's like you're mm -hmm. saying teal, but tuile, tuile has that labiopalatalization which into the E. It simply means that you've got your tongue in the E position, in that arched forward position, earlier than an English speaker would do it. And so there's co-articulation of that arching and lip rounding. So pretty dramatic lip rounding so that you get that two, two. Yeah. Okay, uh, so we want to move on to ATR and RTR? <laughs> yes, please. So uh, ATR is a short form for advanced tongue root and RTR, retracted tongue root. Um, the root of the tongue is sort of what attaches the part that you can see in your mouth to the bottom of your mouth. So it's those vertical muscles that pull the tongue body in towards your um, hyoid bone. Yeah, the yes? yeah, yeah, the hyoglossus. Hyoglossus. Um, and, and the genioglossus, the back fibers are pulling the back of the tongue down and forward as well. Right. So when you contract those muscles, that brings the back of your tongue sort of down and in often giving a quite murky quality to the sound, right? Oh, if I talk with my tongue root advanced all the time, it will pull this forward and into kind of a tough sound. Uh, there's uh, a sound in Swedish, in Stockholm Swedish, uh, which is E, E, penguin, penguin. It's really hard to do, and I'm not doing it quite justice. Uh, but it is in some senses advanced as far as you can go in the E direction, but it has these other E, E, this tongue root advancement that adds this other quality to it. It's just astounding to me when I hear it because the fluent Swedish speaker is able to deploy what to me is a massively smushed mouth in, in just a moment. And uh, it takes a lot of unpacking and... Uh, Eric Singer on the KT Speechwork blog 
uh, has a little article about it. Did he put it up there or did he just send that in an email to us? I'll have to, if it isn't up there, I'll have to make sure he puts it up because it's astounding how many diacritics he laid on top of this symbol. Christmas trees. Exactly. Uh, but this, this advanced tongue root is very useful and the retracted tongue root I find happens quite a lot. Uh, I think that my students, one of the main distinctions, they're going through a point right now where they're doing transcription, transcriptions of each other and reading them back to the person. And so I'm able to put them side by side and make a stereo track where the original is on the left and the, the new rendition is on the right. And so you can listen to them both at the same time. And it's differences in tongue root position that show up as a sort of failure to get the impression right. So some people have Roy retracted tongue roots, and you can do all the manipulation of vowels you want, but unless you have that thing going on, you won't be capturing them. Right. Um, now, we should point out that these little T's, we met yes. them earlier when we did raised and lowering, used to be used in the IPA in a different way. In the same Back way the that day. the plus and the minus are associated with advanced and retracted, uh, the little T pointing forward to the left was advanced and little t pointing back was merely retracted. So it has come to mean something else. Um, and that, you know, often you'll see older transcriptions. Certainly I've used them a lot in the transcription work I've done where I use the little t's instead of the plus and minus. It just makes so much sense. It is so annoying to me to have to take an elegant system and dismantle it, uh, in this way. But, there are worse crimes. Now, the next two are really useful and important. Why would you say that? I don't know. In fact, I find myself with these uh, paired transcription things saying to my students, you know what you should do? You should put a footnote here saying every single vowel is nasalized. If I indicate nasalization, that means it's extreme and I can use the not nasalized symbol from the extended IPA to indicate when, surprisingly, there was a moment of no nasality. <laughs> uh, because, you know, you can keep a lot of nasality going all the way through, and it's, it's a supra-segmental feature then. It's throughout everything. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it's a symbol that we've seen... Uh, in Spanish, for example, over ends, the enye. Uh, I, I guess in that sense, I've associated it with nasalization already. Uh, something wiggly going through your nose, that's what it looks like to me. <laughs> it, looks like, uh, it looks like it feels to me. I imagine sort of wafts of air traveling through my nose. Exactly, because it's above. And there's another symbol that's the same thing below, and we'll get to that later if we get to that in this recording. Uh, the next one is uh, rhoticized, and that one, again, is super important, especially for rhotic accents of English. It can be used, and I think we've covered this in other places, it can be used as it is here on these central vowels, uh, but it can also be used on another vowel that is not ordinarily rhotic to indicate that the bunching action of, of R is happening throughout the vowel. 
And, and as I've said before, um, I'm sure, when we talked about rotisization, the rotis... Is that rotis... I, I think it ought to be rot rotis... Let's say rotisizing. Roticity. Yes. Um, that, uh, that typically you can only squeeze it onto fairly open vowels. Yeah. Because if they're too close, there just isn't room to get that rhotic action um, in a in a noticeable way. So you can make R ah uh, with roticity, but you can't do it on E. It's just not possible. E, e, I can't. It's just not possible. Um, there's just not enough space to get that noticeably working. Um, they, they made some notes here. Um, I don't think we really need to... I think we actually covered these questions. Right. Okay. So on to... Um, these are things about um, yes, about stiff and creaky and slack and breathy. So, shall yeah, we let's talk about this. Yeah, let's run through it fairly quickly. Uh, by the way, I'm hearing a little echo of my own voice, and I'm wondering if that's something. If it's happening on the recording, then we'll uh, either fix it or start over. Uh, so there's a range here of vocal qualities, that is to say, how the phonation is occurring, from absolutely voiceless, with nothing, t, to breathy voice, which is, uh, uh, but happening in the consonant, d, d, d. Slack voice, which is not quite allowing the breath through, but not fully modal, d. Da, da, da. I can't even quite do it. It's some point between breathy and modal. And you can see that the de-voiced ring is underneath it. Uh, then modal is, again, nothing. It's a voiced symbol with no diacritic. Then stiff voice, da, da, da. I'm trying to increase the tension in my vocalis muscle to make my vocal folds a little stiffer. Uh, and... That symbol underneath there, is that the it's voice? The voice. It's a little V, yeah, the voice That's symbol. odd. Then creaky voice, duh, 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 a little Bill Clinton in that duh. Yes, it is. And then a completely closed glottis, uh, so but, which is a co-articulation of a glottal stop and an alveolar stop. So for some languages... Distinctions in voicing on consonants do make distinctions, uh, phonemic distinctions, minimal pairs of words. Mm. We probably won't encounter those very often, though. Right, we may encounter them being deployed, but they have no meaning in English. So, uh, I mean, we certainly do say, oh, when he said, don't, don't, uh, he seemed to be releasing a little bit of air. It seemed to be breathy voice. Uh, we might use them to describe what's happening, but they don't have a sort of index of meaning as they would in another language. Especially things like slack voice and stiff voice, I think we wouldn't even notice. I agree. Um, the challenge is if you're working with someone who has to do a little smidge of language that does include this kind of stuff, it's yeah. often difficult for us to even notice the 
the, the fact that they're happening because yeah. they don't carry any phonemic meaning to us. And so being aware that they're happening, that they could happen, is useful. Uh, but, you know, you, you find yourself in this conversation with a native speaker sometimes where you model a sound and they say, no, and they repeat it back and it sounds exactly like what you just said. And in that case, if you, the sophisticated phonetician, can't tell the difference, then most of your audience probably won't either. So you're saved by imprecision. Perhaps. Um, shall we move on to super segmentals? Yes. So this is tends to uh, affect things like prosody, tone, length, stress, emphasis, um, and they, they are perhaps you know supra segmental, larger than the segment alone. Yeah. It's the syllable, it's the word, perhaps a phrase that's being emphasized, highlighted, raised, lowered, um, yeah. lengthened. And the, the one that is occurring most frequently for us and that we, it's sometimes the first diacritic I employ, which is the primary stress symbol. Yes. Essentially saying to, pointing out something that as English speakers we do almost naturally, which is to let one syllable be the most prominent in a word. Uh, and that's important because in those syllables that aren't prominent, as I said before, we have a tendency in English to centralize them. So photography, photograph, uh, we, we can really tell which one is stressed and which one is unstressed, partially because in English we do something to the vowel of the unstressed one. We make it more like a schwa. Mm-hmm. Now, the secondary stress, stress symbol, we should note that these are happening before the syllable begins. Yes, so, so it's, uh, most of our superscript symbols happen just after, to the right of the symbol, yeah. to the left. Uh, the following symbol is the stressed symbol. The syllable, following syllable is the stressed syllable. And the, the one to the right of that is secondary stress. And... This does not simply mean everything but the primary stress. It means literally there's another one that seems stressed, but it's not as stressed as the most stressed. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the word photography, tog is stressed. None of the others are stressed. There's no secondary stress in photography. Uh, in Appalachia or Appalachia, uh, Appalachian, I'm now I'm confused. Yeah. Uh, so the app, it has some stress, uh, but not as much as the latch. And so there are two levels of stress in there. And there are certainly, especially in polysyllabic words in English, there are certainly many cases where there is secondary stress, but it's not a guarantee. The longer the word goes, the more chance that we'll get secondary stress. Yeah. And typically, words follow a pattern that uh, alternates stress. So if we take uh, an extremely long word, something like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, and you write that out, you'll find that you'll get primary stresses alternating with secondary supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. There are a few primary stresses and a number of secondary stresses that are alternating. So you tend to go secondary stress, Unstressed, 
primary stressed, unstressed, secondary stressed, unstressed, primary stressed. And that alternation helps us give kind of the rhythmic quality that we associate with English. Yeah. Essentially, we're parsing that longer word into smaller word units and running them together. Uh, terrific. I think that's all we need there. It's certainly true that other features like aspiration are influenced by the degree of stress. Uh, so we'll often see these symbols together, that we'll see a stress mark followed by an unvoiced plosive with aspiration, let's say. Uh, the next is length. Length also has uh, some variability in English based on stress. Uh, <clears throat> there are long vowels and short vowels, that is to say, vowels that are available in English to be lengthened as much as they need to be, and short vowels which resist lengthening when stressed. Sometimes referred to as checked and free vowels, uh, they also relate to their need or requirement to have a following consonant. Yeah. So uh, often the vowels that don't have the potential for length are what we would call checked vowels, free vowels, can be said in a long way. But that also goes to say that they can be said in a short way too. So I can say, I'm free, but I can also say, I'm free. And uh, yeah. a short version of free doesn't mean something different. Um, and sometimes uh, dictionaries will use a convention of separating long yeah. forms of vowels from short forms of vowels and uh, originally uh, you know the, the first instances of the ipa being applied to english the difference between e and i was marked by e being a lowercase i with a length mark and i being a lowercase i without a length mark yeah. those are particularly confusing old documents to read because you're scratching your head going it's a it's an E, but it's an I. Surely you're yeah. wrong here. And it's really just a different convention, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a convention that tries to codify what is the most common practice. That It takes something that's observed and turns it into a rule. And, and, and it also conser conserves on symbols. And I think we talked about that when we talked about E. Uh, so we, we can move on from that. The, the rules that govern this in English are stressed vowels, stressed long vowels are lengthened, uh, stressed long vowels that are followed by an unvoiced consonant aren't lengthened as much, uh, the short vowels are pretty much never lengthened, and so it follows a similar pattern to the uh, information about aspiration. Uh, there are features of English stressed long vowels. And I think that this sort of thing is useful in looking at text because you'll often see patterns of movement in between long vowels and very, very short vowels. That There can be textural patterns in the text uh, that are played out with the length of sounds. Yeah. Um, and uh, that, I think it also is worth saying that some accents of English have a greater contrast of long and short. North American accents typically have less of a contrast between long and short than, say, uh, uh, 
British accents have contrast of long and short, and so we may be less sensitive to the contrast of long and short than perhaps our British counterparts. Yeah, I, I resist that notion because I think they're overlapping clouds of possibility. And I would want to see some statistical analysis from samples of a British speaker and an American speaker to see whether there's how much data there is to support that there's really a difference between North American and British vowel length. Uh, I think it's a much messier proposition than is being proposed by the books. Right. Let's move on. So um, yes. we haven't discussed the brev symbol, extra short. Um, uh, well, we may have talked about it. Have we already talked about the non-syllabic symbol? We did in the last episode. We did. So... This extra short or brev symbol used to be always the way that you would indicate a diphthong because the second element of a diphthong is pretty much short. Uh, by using the non-syllabic mark, we free up the brev symbol to mean specifically short. So in a longer text, if you were going to say uh, the man and th was very, very short, that vowel could get a little brev mark over it to indicate how short it is compared to some other. It is also true that you could double those up. If something is incredibly short, you could put a brev on top of a brev. Stack them. Exactly. I really like stacking diacritics uh, because it's an impressionistic uh, technique for describing something uh, to somebody who's reading it. So I like a stacked brev every once in a while. I think it's uh, reminiscent of those dancers from Mongolia with bowls <laughs> stacked on their heads. Yes. So, um, so uh, the, uh, the next symbol on our chart is the syllable break, which is essentially a period that appears yeah. between two symbols, almost always vowels, it seems to me. Yeah, because otherwise there's no point. You, you might need to say that react or creative are two separate syllables and not a weird diphthong. But uh, in believe, you you know that the b is one syllable and the leave is the other. You don't need to tell us by putting a, a period in between them. Right. Um, yeah, so often it's instances where the transcription perhaps might make it look like a diphthong is occurring. Yeah. And so uh, by putting that period in, it helps us, our, the I, to separate, okay, this part is in the first syllable and this part is in the second syllable. It typically, of course, is breaking a weak syllable off from yeah. another syllable because otherwise you'd use a primary or secondary stress um, to mar mark that syllable yeah. break. So uh, when people are starting out, sometimes you get people putting primary stress and syllable break periods uh, happening simultaneously, and which starts to look a bit like exclamation marks all over the place. Well, and these two symbols side by side here are really related, the linking, the absence of a break and the syllable break. What we're, what's inherent in this that we haven't said is that spaces have no phonetic value, that all speech is continuous, uh, connected, and if we were being honest with our transcriptions, we would just 
clump everything together, and you wouldn't be able to tell where one word started and the other ended. That is not the way we perceive language, and it's not the way we read language, so we tend to put spaces in between words to help us figure out what the word is. But sometimes we want to say, it really seemed as though these two words were run together in a surprising way, and therefore I'll put a linking symbol. Or, don't think that they were run together, there was a break between these two syllables, and put a period in. And as you say, I often get from students syllable breaks and linking marks all over the place to tell me what is obvious, that the words are run together, uh, or that they're broken apart. And you only need to put those together when it's a special case, something interesting. For example, in a linking R situation, you might want to put the linking symbol to say, far away was close enough that I couldn't tell whether the R was part of far or part of away. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so it's not far away, it's far away, and somehow that's a blend that's yeah. more complicated. Okay. So the next uh, section of this area is about intonation, and intonation mostly has to do with pitch change um, yeah. and, and the breaks that happen, sort of rhythmical breaks into chunks. Yeah. Um, so there are two uh, breaks in terms of that timing, the minor break and the major break, and they, they call the the minor one a foot break, as opposed to an intonation break, um, and which is the major one. Um, the vertical stroke or the double vertical stroke. I'm familiar with these from music, mm -hmm. um, that these vertical, double vertical stroke is used frequently to indicate um, a break in the music where you, you know, if you're a, in an orchestra, you wait for the conductor, right? So you, you get the double stroke and you stop and everybody looks up and then the conductor gives you the downbeat for the next, um, the next section. Um, a foot break and an intonation break. Well, what does that mean? Well, uh, in scansion, you're separating out units of repeated stress patterns, and so each of those is a foot, and you, I, I always use them when I'm scanning a text uh, that I put a little break in between each foot, uh, that doesn't mean that there's necessarily a pause or anything, but it's a way for me to mark out that some idea is occurring between those lines. Now, in, in regular speech, I might use that mark to indicate a slight pause, a comma, for example, and I would use the double mark to indicate some end of a phrase like a period. So I tend to use them as pause markers, in writing out a, a text, but they're really designed for a somewhat different purpose, that is to focus your attention on units, on intonational phrases, uh, and units of prosody. Uh, mm. well, you know, you could also say that there are ways of breaking up ideas. Uh, a foot is an idea, uh, but it's an idea that is unrelated to the inherent meaning and pronunciation of the word. Uh, the major or intonation break is 
really important because you're going to find a singular, a single nuclear tone in that, which is the most prominent syllable in that international phrase. So I would just refer everybody to uh, J.C. Wells' book on intonation, English intonation, which really carefully and beautifully describes how intonation works in English and how to, how to think about it and how to talk about it. Uh, it's something that has a real relationship to what actors do, but I have yet to find a successful way to teach a group of actors all about English intonation in a way that they can actually get to use it before they fall dead from exhaustion. Yes. So, uh, and most of us as English speakers already have an intuition about how this works anyway, so we don't Indeed. need to be taught. Yes. I was watching, uh, I went and saw the uh, uh, Captain America movie <clears throat> last <clears throat> week, and uh, Robert Redford is a very prominent actor in the film. And I was really noticing to what degree he makes everything a, a fall. Everything mm. he says falls. He never raises at the ends of any thoughts. He never suspends a thought. Everything falls. Always it always ends with a fall. That's and his uh, really version. He's, he's telling us how authentic he is. He is. Truthful. Very true. Yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, we have these global rise and global fall things. Those are, again, about intonation. And as you were just saying with Robert Redford, uh, rises and falls as general principles are really useful for actors. Uh, I think are, these symbols are a little bit too um, gross for yeah. most people's purposes. Um, and the, the kinds of symbols that you get in a, a text like J.C. Wells' English Intonation uh, is actually more granular, more detailed. Yes. It. And um, most people, most of the people I've read who include intonation in their work um, don't, don't use these symbols. No, uh, I, I suspect that this may be more related to, uh, you know, sonologists, people who specialize in Asian languages, um, because they're using tones and, uh, again, the IPA system of tones generally not used as much, um, they're tending to use numerical values to represent mm -hmm. tones. Um, I suspect that this was brought into the IPA at a certain point in a certain fashion and remains in the IPA, hasn't been taken out, um, but uh, I think other people are using other methodologies to notate tone. I have to say that I like the symbols being in the Unicode because if I'm trying to write a note to an actor or to describe something for a handout for students, I can very generally say this goes up or this goes down. Right. Now, the next group are, as you say, tone diacritics, tone being a separate information stream in some languages, uh, making contrastive uh, pairings between ma and ma uh, that and there are we see here extra high high mid low extra low we also have falling and rising within a syllable don't we we do and that's just in specific chinese languages um there are many different forms of chinese and other other languages that use tone that are different from chinese um, so the uh, you know there's uh, 
there's the ah uh, kind of tone. There's ah uh, ah. Uh. There there are a number of different patterns like this, and you can combine the tone diacritics, and that's explained on this uh, Wikipedia see. page. If you read underneath the chart, um, that that that's possible. Um, that there's essentially two systems. Uh, on the left of this chart, there's a system that looks like accents. You know, like the letter E with an acute <laughs> accent or a grav accent. Um, the, and learning how to read those, actually, there's a little trick to it, and it's not very difficult. If you can imagine a meter in on your dashboard for gasoline, and the letters for the meter are on the right side of the meter, and the, the needle is on the left, when the needle is pointing to full, the left side of the angle of the needle is down, and the right side is pointing up. When the gas tank is empty, the left side is up, and the right side is down. That's essentially pointing to high. Mm -hmm. The accent is an acute accent, is pointing high. When it's low, it's pointing down. So if you imagine the pivot point of your, your needle is uh, on the left-hand side. So if you always use your left hand, to figure out high and low, you will always get the diacritic mark right. If you start to do it with your right hand, you're you're in big trouble. So just make sure yeah. that to remember that to get these tone diacritics correct, use your left hand to do high and low like a gas tank meter, and you'll be in business. I, I usually tell my students not to indicate pitch characteristics when transcribing English because I don't want them to be confused. If they hear E, they'll hear a pitch variation, but the vowel, the the quality of the vowel will stay the same. The shape of the vowel will stay the same. And I want them to separate those two things. Yeah. Uh, also, that's just a sort of a, a organizational thing for me because I deal with tone, I, I deal with intonation in a different class. Right. So I'm not using phonetics to talk about it. Although you're right, I absolutely could. Uh, and as you say, J.C. Wells uh, uses symbols to indicate those things in intonation. I haven't looked at the intonation section of Wikipedia, but I imagine it explains things fairly well. Right. And if you were trying to accurately capture the pronunciation of something like Beijing, where you wanted a yeah. lower and a higher... It might be useful in a certain instance capturing a specific uh, uh, characteristic of a language other than English. Absolutely. We, we've reached the bottom of our chart here. We did it! Yay! Yay! And uh, there is an extended IPA. Uh, I don't think we ought to dive into that today in this episode. No. Uh, and I do borrow some symbols from that. All of these diacritics are a way of thinking more deeply into exactly what's going on. And they're not always necessary, um, but they're another layer of fine-grained attention. And in that sense, I do think they're really useful for students to work with, even if they don't end up using them on everything. Mm -hmm. Because you have to encounter what exactly is going on and before you can decide how to describe it. Nicely put. That uh, that encounter is where a lot of the learning happens. 
Absolutely. And so finally, I was saying this to my students just yesterday, the experience of describing precisely what's happening is like constructing a mask, but then you have to go back and put the mask on and play it. You have to actually remember what word you're saying. So let's say I very carefully decided that the speaker is saying on Thursday, and I've written out very carefully, diacritically on Thursday. And then I've got to say, she's saying on Thursday, and then I'm going to say it. You have to engage in the gesture of speech, which is not, it's a moving target. It's mid gesture. It's not still snapshots. So all this close thinking is really, really useful. And then you've got to do. And in the doing, you'll probably strike the appropriate action more accurately because the action was originally performed by somebody in the middle of flow. So you, you have to recreate the flow of it, not just the close description of it. Yes, we, we have to get from conscious competence to unconscious competence, don't we? Here, here. Well, speaking of incompetence, uh, no, uh, <laughs> let's go from competence to completeness and say we have come to the end of this episode and uh, we'll get together and uh, do a few more of these. Uh, but we're coming to the end of uh, all the IPA and it may be that our dear listeners have some things they'd like us to talk about or explain or wax philosophical about and uh, you can certainly let us know about that what what would that contact be Eric? it would be glossonomia at gmail.com so excellent love to hear from you terrific i will see you eric next time yes and hopefully we'll talk to our listeners soon excellent bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.